Thanks for joining us today for the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast, a place where trauma, hardship, and challenge meet faith and hope for the future. Here is your host, Jill Riley. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. Season three has arrived. I am so excited to share with you this season new guests, new topics, and some great conversations. So tune in every week on Fridays. We will have a new episode. Also this season, we will celebrate our 100th episode. So stay tuned for that. Just happens to fall on my birthday, October 28th. So we will have a big celebration. Thank you so much for joining us. And here's today's guest. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. I'm so glad that you're here today. This is Jill Riley, and I am here with Amy Nordhues. Amy, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you. And where in the world are you? I am in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. Bartlesville. Which is in the northeast corner of Oklahoma. How, how big is Bartlesville? Um, I think around 40, 45,000 people. Really? Sounds small. Smells, sounds like small. It's small. <laughs> It's small. Yeah. There's one high school, one movie theater. I, I consider that small. Yep, that's small. Well, <laughs> let me tell you a little bit about Amy. Amy is a survivor of sexual abuse as an adult at the hands of a mental health professional. She's a passionate Christ follower and expert on the healing that God provides. She has a BA in psychology with minors in sociology and criminology. She has several devotions that have been published and is an award-winning writer. Um, she blogs at Amy Nordhues and a mother, married mother of three. She enjoys spending time with family, writing, reading, photography, and all things comedy. What kind of comedy do you like? I love Sebastian Maniscalco. Have you heard of him? No. Oh my gosh. He's amazing. And I like Brian Regan, uh, Nate Bargatze. There's others, but those are probably my top three. That's awesome. That's awesome. I uh, I'm excited. Uh, by the time this comes out, it will have already happened. But we get to see David Sedaris next next week. So oh, that'll I'm, be awesome. Yeah, I'm very excited. I just I just love his sense of storytelling and and how he's able to communicate with both humor and and just really profound words. So I'm yeah. excited. I'm excited. So who's your favorite author? Oh my gosh. Mary, maybe Mary DeMuth. Okay, cool. Diane Langberg. I don't know. I have a bunch. Yeah. I don't cool. think I could pick just one. Yeah. And I love memoir. So, and oftentimes, you know, there's an author will just write their memoir. And so, and not other books. Right. And so I, and I love almost everyone I read. So, yeah, that's cool. That's cool. So tell me about your family, three children. How's that? Easier now <laughs> because I have um, a 21-year-old daughter in college. I have an 18-year-old son in college, and then I have a almost 16-year-old son in high school. Okay, yeah. Probably what keeps us the most busy now is that we have four dogs. <laughs> yeah, which was kind of poor planning, you know, because now we're like supposed to be empty nesters, but now we have four dogs. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we are empty nesters and we have discovered that since the last child left home, we, uh, our water bill went down by 75%. 
Oh my gosh. That was a frequent showerer, right? <laughs> that she's a runner and she, yes, is a frequent, frequent showerer. So now she's That's her hilarious. husband. Now she's her husband's problem. So, <laughs> so, That's so Amy, tell me a little bit about your growing up years. Where did you grow up and, and what was that like? Do you have siblings and yeah, I, I was born in Atlanta, Georgia. And I was adopted by my parents. Um, they had tried to have kids for like seven, eight years and couldn't. And then my parents went on to have twin girls. And then they went on to have uh, another girl of their own. So there were four girls. I was the oldest. Um, and yeah, I, I had kind of a, a classic childhood. You know, my mom stayed home. I was a tomboy. So mm-hmm. my life took place outdoors. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, with the neighborhood boys. And um, we moved from there when I was about 15 to Oklahoma. So I just say that I'm from Oklahoma because okay. that's where I met my husband and that's where I live now. Okay. Great. Great. So what, uh, in your growing up years, what is one thing that kind of sticks out in your mind as a challenge? Like, you know, as teenagers and as, as kids we're angsty and we're, you know, we have insecurities, you know, what was your, what was your um, kind of obstacle there? Yeah. um, I was molested by a family friend at a very young age. And then again, by a priest when I was around the age of 12 or 13. Oh, and on top of that, I felt like I was very different from my family, maybe being adopted. I was very emotional and sensitive. And I felt like even though my emotional reactions were probably normal to whatever the situations were, I just felt like life wouldn't be so hard if I just wasn't so emotional and sensitive, like I'm the problem Um, and I need to somehow fix me because it, you know, in watching my mom and my sisters, it just didn't feel you know, I didn't see them being as emotional. And so I always thought that was a flaw, a defect. Um, so I was very hard on myself, uh, very driven. It's almost like I, I think looking back, I was trying to compensate for something mm-hmm. that I felt like was lacking in me, mm-hmm. you know, just trying to get good grades and just, and be, be good and be responsible. Um, and so t- when I became a teenager, that kind of translated into, for me, an eating disorder. I had anorexia and bulimia, and I think that that was largely like, a, you know, trying to gain some semblance of control where my right. world felt completely out of control, you know, with the abuse and, you know, all that was kept secret. And so there was really nowhere for me to categorize that in my brain. Um, it just sort of floated out there you know, we, we swept a lot of things under the rug. Yeah. And that leaves you feeling just kind of lost. And I think, you know, and I, I kind of felt like a black sheep. I just felt like just be normal. If you Mm. just were normal, you would just, this wouldn't be hard for you. You wouldn't have an eating disorder. You wouldn't struggle. And the kind of normal that you, you were perceiving was a more stoic, a more, um, you know, of just a flatter affect on life instead of this sensitive, emotional girl. Yes. And it was hard not having anyone around me that was similar to me in that way. Um, but yeah, I thought life hasn't been hard for you. You just are overreactive to it. 
Mm. When in fact, there was a lot in my life that was hard for me and my emotional reactions were perfectly normal for the situation, but I didn't have anybody to really compare it to, or that would seem similar to me, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't know if you felt this way, but being a tomboy, you have all these boys around, but boys react to things very differently than girls. So you don't, you, you, you play and interact, but you don't sit down and have these, you know, heart to heart conversations. Like, like we maybe crave when um, we're sensitive. Yeah, you know, and that's another good point. And that's probably why, maybe what partly why I was drawn to boys, although I think I was naturally kind of an athletic type, but um, we didn't do emotional closeness, right. you know, growing up. So boys playing with all boys, that fit right in. And, you know, as I got older and I started feeling very alone and, you know, you, you can't really put it into words. You can't say mm-hmm. it as a teenager, I need connection. You know, you, you don't right. really verbalize that, but I think you know, that that was a large part of it is I kind of always felt like I was on my own island emotionally. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was normal and that I should, again, if there wasn't something wrong with me, that would be fine. Right. You know, I'd be fine. And so I, I do think that was a lot of it. And I, I didn't really learn how to do emotional connection until I was an adult. Well, and really um, trauma is so isolating. I mean, it puts you on, it does put you on your own island because you're trying to survive and, and keep everything together. And, and as kids, we don't understand that. Now as adults, we understand what that does to, to a child, but that really makes a big difference. So give me just the highlights. You wrote a book called uh, Preyed Upon, and I, I want to have you give me just a, a, a short synopsis of it and then then let's talk about it. Okay. In 2013 or 14 or both, I was seeing a therapist in my town. He was also a psychiatrist and he was also a leader at my church. He was a church elder. He came highly recommended and I just started seeing him for longstanding depression, my past sexual abuse issues surrounding my marriage, family, things like that. He took a very spiritual approach to therapy. And I thought I was in excellent hands because I had kind of become a new believer um, just before then. And, you know, I'd always been a Christian, but it just sort of kind of came alive for me for the first time. Mm -hmm. And so here I thought, you know, this has to be part of God's plan. You know, here I am with this therapist, that's this religious you know, Bible scholar, and we started sessions in prayer. And I thought, this is, you know, God's gift to me to kind of finally give me that healing that I needed. He played a father figure role for me. And, you know, I didn't realize that anything that was happening, I didn't think anything was amiss until the very end when he sexually assaults me. And it was only after I get out and look back that I realized that I'd been being manipulated the entire time and that I had never been special and he had never cared about me nor had any concern for me. And that the whole thing had been, you know, a lie, a joke, um, you know, that he had just been a predator and I had just been another one of his victims. Wow. Wow. So how does that, what, first of all, um, what gives you the courage? What gave you the courage to tell your story? You know, I didn't want 
anyone to know at first. You know, I just wanted out and I couldn't get out of my own. So I was forced to go to reach out for help. And I did reach out to my pastor and and was able to at least cut the tie and no longer go back. I just felt like it was the right thing to do to tell my husband. And then in time, I, you know, it was just sort of baby steps. I think God just gave me a little bit, just gave me what I needed just to do the next step because I did Mm -hmm. not feel courageous. Trust me. Um, I eventually got the courage to go to the medical board, eventually got the courage to file a civil suit because it was just so incredibly unfair that he could just pretend to retire and move away and, Mm. you know, have no other consequence but that. And then I really just wrote out my story, I think, because I needed to understand it because I couldn't forgive myself if I couldn't understand it. And I didn't understand why I couldn't leave. And it just frustrated me. So I, you know, I wrote it out and then I, in time realized that um, I know there were so many other adult victims like myself that are in so much pain, that are so embarrassed, that are so ashamed, that are so confused um, that I wanted to share it with them. And so it just very slowly kind of grew into this ministry that I feel like it is today, but believe me, I did not feel courageous. Mm. So I just feel like God is the one who gave me what I needed maybe for each to complete the next day. Right. So um, how long, how long did you see that, see that therapist? I saw him for a year and a couple months. Okay. So it was kind of a, um, a short relationship in the sense of, um, you know, of, of time, but yeah. Yeah. So did you wonder after getting out of it, um, where was your faith in that? How did your faith interact with that? Did you feel, um, like God was, God was present in your life or did you feel an absence of that? How did you feel? Yes. For the first, I'd say 40 years of my life, I was angry with God. I felt like he was far away. I didn't agree with this whole setup he had down here. I was, <laughs> I was just at my, I, I was just livid. I didn't want any part of it. I just felt like it was so incredibly unfair. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I didn't understand. I guess I just really didn't understand him. And so when I kind of had this wake up call and realized that God is very present in my life, that he can interact with me in the here and now, and that he does hear me, you know, that changed me dramatically and honestly saved me because of this, you know, trauma that was about to occur, because I don't think that I could have survived it to be quite honest with you. So that being said, I never thought God had turned his back on me. I could feel his presence. I could, I knew he was calling out to me, trying to, to warn me that I was in danger, but I, I thought that God had sent this person to me as a gift. So it took me a long time to understand, like, God, are you telling me to leave? Or like, is Satan trying to take away something good you gave me? Because I don't understand what's bad here because he's like a father to me. And yeah, he, treats me a little more special, but don't you want me to feel special? And 
and yeah, he gives me longer sessions, but I mean, there's no danger here, God. So, you know, and then as it got farther in and I started to feel very uncomfortable that I felt like the therapist was trying to lure me into an emotional affair. I was like, okay, this is a problem. But it was like, I was so attached by then that it was me saying, God, just, just give me a little more time. I'll fix it. If when he realizes this is hurting me, he'll stop kind of thing. So it was really more me saying, you know, it wasn't God being absent. It was Mm -hmm. me, you know, struggling through my humanness and my being attached and not wanting to give that up. And and my confusion about what was happening. And then when I got out, um, I didn't trust anybody. And I was so broken by this experience that I had no choice but to cling to God. I mean, mm-hmm. it wasn't that I had this amazing faith. It was like, I can't survive. Like, you're going like, to have to literally hold me up. Like, I don't even think I can walk. And and then he did show up for me in really amazing ways. So it ended up as painful as it was, it ended up strengthening my faith. Mm, that's amazing. That's amazing. Um, so there were warning signs. You felt like there were warning signs going along the along the way. What what were those little voices um saying to you? Um, in the beginning, it wasn't necessarily voices, but just he would do something that just seemed really odd or a little shocking. And I would feel discomfort. Like for example, he just suddenly in the middle of our conversation, you know, put one of his feet on the side of the ottoman. And, and I was like, what is he doing? Like it, he looked really awkward. And I just, you know, it's like, we're so trained to be polite and be respectful. I was like, don't stare, just, you're making him uncomfortable. Just keep talking and pretend he's not doing something weird, whatever. Um, and so, you know, eventually he, then he put his foot up on the ottoman. He was essentially trying to sneak, I guess, his get close feet up there. Yes. To, Cause that's how he initiated contact with me because I wanted nothing to do with that ottoman. He would always offer it to me. Do you want to put your feet on the ottoman? No, I don't want to put my feet on the ottoman. I'm in therapy. Like I'm not at the movies, you know? And so that was his way. He was going to then eventually see if I'd put my feet up there. So it was the only way he could really figure out to initiate touch with me was with feet. Um, But every time there was something like that, then I would be like, oh, Amy, I mean, he's putting his shoe on the ottoman. Like, is that like, is that that big of a deal? Like, what is your problem? It was always what is wrong with you? Like, who cares? And then, you know, one session you know, and I'd been seeing him for a long time by this point too. So I was attached to him. I felt like he was more like a father figure, uh, more like a, uh, like a Christian mentor. Um, and I liked that. I didn't just feel like a regular client. You know, I liked that he saw me a little bit more as a daughter than a, than a paying client. I liked all that. So when he took his shoes off, yes, I panicked. And, but then again, my mind was like, again, what is your problem? Like mm-hmm. he's comfortable with you. Like, does, does he need to be in full suit and tie for therapy here in the office with somebody he's comfortable with? No, but you know, so everything that he did, I ended up blaming myself for my discomfort mm-hmm. and I had a right to feel uncomfortable, but I would just immediately just bash myself for like, there's again, there is something wrong with you. 
that you are uncomfortable with this because he wouldn't be doing something that's inappropriate. So if it feels inappropriate to you, then you're too sensitive. You're, you're to this, you're to that. Right. You're to something, you know, because it can't be him. It has to be you. So I saw everything through that lens. Isn't that amazing when something happens that um, you, you just uh, kind of absorb that and become um, you absorb that and bring it all in on yourself. Yeah. It's not only am I mad at myself that it's bothering me. I'm critical of myself that I'm making him feel uncomfortable for making me feel right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Like like I can't win. I cannot win. (laughs) Yeah. So um, no criminal charges were filed though. Right. No, I talked to several attorneys about that, that were knowledgeable in this sort of abuse. And I was told that it would be brutal for me and my family. And he would likely walk because in the state of Oklahoma, there is no criminal legislation against therapist abuse. In, what? Yeah. In a little bit about, I think 32 states now have criminal legislation. A therapist cannot be sexually involved with a client, period. It is, it is unethical everywhere, but it's only criminalized in a little bit over half our states. So good luck proving you know, anything to, you know, a court system when it's your word against his with no witnesses. Wow. And he's a psychiatrist and I'm a patient. Right. So, yeah, that's why I ended up. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, So you did go to the, the medical board though. Yes. I went to the medical board really even then I, I shared with a friend what happened and she said, I'm a mandated reporter and I have to report him. And I didn't even want her to at first because I was terrified of the world finding out. Um, and I still felt guilty. I still felt like, who am I to turn this person in? Yes, he hurt me, but he helps other people. So just, just get me out of it and let him go on with his life. Um, but she reported to the medical board first, and then I finally was ready to do it myself. And that was a scary but comforting experience because I was the first complaint this doctor had had in, I think, 36 years. And they believed me and took action. And I felt like they treated me really kindly and with respect. So, And by taking action, what does that mean? That means that they did a full investigation and they had two choices. Well, I mean, I guess they had more choices. They could, they could decide the case wasn't, you know, worthy of pursuing, but they, they knew that it was. And then the doctor could, they could allow him to surrender his license or they could force him to have a full trial with the medical board, with attorneys, everything, sometimes uh, news crews are there and do a full trial and then take his license from him. The medical board debated about which one they should do and decided we should allow him to surrender it because of the trauma that it's going to put the victim through to have to testify against him, even though we would like to have a trial and take it from him because that's what he deserves. They discussed it and decided let's just allow him to surrender it because that's the ultimate goal. You know, Mm -hmm. the ultimate goal is to take the license. They had already, you know, 
presented that to him and he'd already surrendered it and signed the paperwork. They had that in their hands. So at the end of the meeting, they said, yeah, we'll just let him surrender it. Um, they did tell me that it was, and I, I don't know if I'm misquoting now, but like the fifth permanent surrender that they'd ever issued in 20 years, meaning um, most doctors, when they lose their license, can reapply for it within one year. And mine can never reapply for it in this state. So there was okay. some justice in that. Yeah. So what happened with his position with the church? How did the church react? My pastor immediately told me he would need to, that he would be removed as elder. Period. Okay. And so I was lucky in that I was believed and that he took action after that. However, it was painful and I became lumped in with my abuser as two sinners in need of help. And we just want to get you both the Mm -hmm. help that you need. And yes, it was just absolutely devastating. And I eventually told my pastor, if you can't talk to me about this, as if I'm your own daughter, then don't talk to me about it at all. And he said, okay. And he stopped speaking to me about it because it was brutal Mm -hmm. um, being lumped back into that category. I mean, the church just went into protect church image mode and victims get tossed out. Right. Right. Yeah. So there were some pluses and, but there were some, definitely some things where they need to grow. At what point in the year plus long relationship did um, anything sexual happen? Like, was that towards the end and then you left or was it, was it sooner than that? Well, yeah, it was sexual right at the very end, um, meaning the last two weeks. Okay. And I was seeing him twice a week. So, you know, for those two weeks, it was strictly of a sexual nature. Okay. There were things like leading up to it that he did that were inappropriate. And I blamed them on myself, minimized them rationalize that they would never happen again, but they weren't as like blatant um, as it was at the very end. Right. Right. So did you feel some sort of um, peace or justice, um, a reckoning when his license was taken away? I mean, it was a step. It was a big step forward. And at least, you know, it freed up other victims that he was also taking advantage of at the same time. And it freed victims that he would take advantage of in the future. Right. So for that, I, you know, I'm hugely grateful for that and did feel some sense of justice. However, the damage that he inflicted on me and others is so great that that punishment does not fit the crime. It's so, so grievous that, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's premeditated. It's, and it gone on for, I don't know how long and just destroyed lives. And, and some of these patients, you know, had mental illness and Mm -hmm. how are they supposed to defend themselves? Yeah. So it just, it just outrages me, you know? So in that regard, I feel like he just got to walk. Mm -hmm. He was of retirement age already. Yeah. So. So. Have you been able to trust another therapist? I did. Um, I, you know, I, I had so much trauma and so much pain that I knew that I 
that family and friends couldn't handle that. So I did reach out to another therapist. I ended up doing a year of EMDR therapy Mm. and that was very helpful. And then like years later, it's kind of like this trauma. There was the initial damage and then it kind of trickled into my family and kind of slowly deteriorated all of us. And so I needed to seek out help again. And I found someone um, who I did trust and who was a male, which was huge for me. Um, Mm -hmm. But he was very ethical. And I just so appreciated going to therapy where there are boundaries and where I can pay and where I don't care, you know, if they like me or I like them, I just want the professional help and I go and I leave. And so, yes, I have been able to to find That's that. And amazing. I always like to point that out to victims of this kind of abuse, because there are good therapists out there and there are sociopaths lurking everywhere. Right. In every, you know, genre and profession. So to write them all off would just be hurting ourselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you say there was an apology email. What was that like? Yeah. And, you know, when you asked me that, I was like, I need to revisit that email, but I don't know that I ever want to read it again. It was more one of of those things where you, after you read the whole thing, you're like, did he say he was sorry? I'm not (laughs) sure. I'm going to have to reread it. And it's, it's more like, um, I'm sorry that you felt hurt. Uh, I'm sorry sorry for your hurt feelings. Why, you know, for whatever reason you're feeling hurt, I'm sorry that you are feeling hurt. And, and if I played any role in that, it was just awful. No, that's not, that's not an apology. You know, I know he did it. He sent it to my pastor. And so I feel like he had to do that to pretend to be doing the right thing. He sent it to my pastor and said something really sappy about if you, if you think that if you see fit that this would help Amy, then do please send it along to her. And he said it infuriated him and he, he wasn't even going to send it to me because he knew that it wasn't an apology, but then he felt guilty and felt like, well, he owed it to me just to send it along. Wow. Well, I'm glad you had the support of your pastor. Um, Oftentimes when things like this happen, it feels like um, everybody circles the wagons to protect the institution rather than the victim. And so I'm glad that you feel like you had the trust of the trust of of leadership there. Yeah. I kind of had a little bit of both. Yeah. I had the much better than a lot of women face. And then I had a lot of painful experiences that a lot of women go through. Yeah. So the book is called Prayed Upon. It is available on Amazon and any place else. The paperback is sold wherever books are sold. Um, it, it is also available on my website. Um, which is? Which is www.amynordhues.com. Okay. And Nordhues is spelled N-O-R-D-H-U-E-S, just like it's, pr- just like it's um, pronounced. And so, Amy, A-M-Y. Okay. Great. Well, Amy, I just really appreciate your vulnerability and this conversation. I think um, it it helps to have people who will tell their story and open up, even though it's it's hard and painful and and brings up brings up emotions and things that we think that are are kept kept dormant for a while. So I really appreciate that. So. Again, it's amynordhues.com. I um, encourage you to get the book and to read it. And Amy, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you.
If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. You can find Jill at JillRiley.com, on Facebook at JillRiley.author, Twitter at JillRileyAuthor, and Instagram at JillRiley.author. Also, feel free to send Jill an email at Jill at JillRiley.org. Thanks for listening in and have a great day.